I've had occasion before in the context of a sermon illustration to share with you my past experience with ignoring the warning lights that might turn on on my car dashboard. Uh, about 13 years ago, I saw this little yellow light come on in the shape of a, I guess it was an oil can, um, come on above my steering wheel, and I calmly thought, if I ignore it, it will go away. And it did go away. When the engine seized up because there was no oil pressure, the car stopped and died, the light did turn off. But the point is, those warning lights are there to elicit a response. To ignore them can be dangerous and costly. Friends, brothers and sisters, those of you listening and tuning in this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands a response. Ignoring it is a response. It is a negative response in and of itself. Now, as we've moved through the second chapter of Acts, we have seen the Holy Spirit descend upon the infant church. We've listened as Peter, empowered and moved by the Holy Spirit, preaches the very first gospel message. Today, we will focus on the response to that message. Because as I said just moments ago, the truth of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection demand a response from every single human being. And we will all be held accountable eventually, for what our response has been. Today I'll be reading from Acts chapter 2. I'm going to just pick up the very, very end of Peter's sermon and then carry on through the aftermath and the response. So I'll begin reading with verse 36, the final declaration that Peter makes that causes such shock, that makes the connection, as I said last week, that connects the man Jesus that the Jews were aware of and the concept of the Messiah that they did not know. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The people listening to Peter's sermon understood that this information required a response. How do we know that? Because they ask him. They were cut to the heart and they ask, what should we do? So they got it. They understood that. The first required response, okay, if you're following along, the first required response is to repent. I know we touched on this last week, but I want to mention it again because it's so crucially important. 
To repent is, first of all, to admit sin. It is to agree with God that we fall short of perfection and that no matter how hard we try, we will never be able to reach sinlessness. But admitting sin is only the first part of repentance. The second part that completes it is a turning away from or a leaving behind of sinful behaviors. So it's made up both of the desire and the intent to not do that sinful stuff anymore. Just admitting it's not enough. There must also be a turning away from the sin and a turning to the forgiveness, holiness, and purity of Jesus Christ. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Now, there's another response that follows repentance, according to Peter. So this is our, the second response, and that is baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what Peter tells the crowd. Now, I want to be clear about something. The phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ, in this case, applies to both the repent and the baptized. So there are those two verbs, and then... In, in between, we have every one of you or each one of you followed by in the name of Jesus Christ. So in the name of Jesus Christ is applying to both the repenting and the baptizing. Sometimes we think it, it applies only to the baptizing because that's the closest one. But repentance and baptism are very, very closely joined together. So people repent in the name of Jesus and they are baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, what is this practice, though, that's called baptism? What is it? What does it mean? This early Jewish audience would have been familiar with the concept of baptism. Baptism was practiced in a number of different ways within the Jewish religion, and it was practiced in, for different reasons and, and in different settings. Remember, John the Baptist had already been baptizing people for repentance, approximately three years prior to this event. Baptism uh, is kind of an odd thing if we think about it, particularly in our contemporary context. Here in this church building, when we baptize, you know, there's someone uh, with, with the pastor, with me in, you know, behind that screen, in water, and, and they get wet, and nobody, and everyone else watches. You know, it's, it's strange. It's, it's a weird thing. I mean, there's, there's no other context really where we, you know, we watch, we just sit and watch people get, get, get wet or witness them getting wet. What's going on with this? And why is this so important? Why does Peter say this is one of the keys? Repent and be baptized. That's the response to the gospel. Why? Baptism is a public commitment to Jesus. And it is a public identification with his death and resurrection. In the past, you've probably heard me refer to baptism as a sacrament, which means a visible sign of an invisible truth. And here, Peter also links baptism to forgiveness. Now, again, remember that this forgiveness is linked to both the repentance and the baptism. But consider the act of baptism. A person goes down into the water, 
They are fully submerged and they come back up. It's a visible sign of purification. And just as the body is washed clean by the water, so the soul has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Now we don't see the blood of Jesus washing the soul, but we see the water washing the body. So there's the visible sign of the invisible truth. I do want to emphasize that baptism is not salvation. I've um, many times had the, the opportunity to ask people, tell me about how you came to belong to Jesus. Tell me about how you met Jesus. Tell me how you became a Christian. And often someone will say, well, I was baptized on such and such a day, and they just leave it at that. That's only part of the story. Scripture makes it clear that salvation is by, by grace alone through faith alone. And in, um, in Acts 16.31, a very, very common passage that I quote when talking about baptism, Paul and Silas are asked what, what, what has to happen for a person to be saved. The, the Philippian jailer asks them, what do I need to do to be saved? And they answer saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your house. And that's it. At the same time though, so on, on the one hand, baptism is not salvation, but on the other hand, all through the New Testament, baptism and salvation are very closely linked, just as we see with what Peter says here, repent, be baptized. Baptism should be the natural, normal, inevitable step that follows repentance. So while I would never go so far as to say that a person who claims to belong to Jesus but has never been baptized is not saved, I would question their commitment to Jesus. When people hear the truth of the gospel, when they're convicted of sin, when they repent, when they come to Jesus and receive his forgiveness, they are quick to desire to follow him in baptism. If they are resistant to baptism, something's wrong. Maybe another way to think about this for an illustration would be marriage. Suppose there's a man who declares his undying love for a woman. He tells her, I want to live with you. I'm going to move into your home. I want to have a sexual relationship with you, and we're going to live together forever in bliss, but I'm not going to marry you. And, and you know, probably all of you who are, who are listening right now are familiar with, with a situation like this, a real situation. And I actually hear and see this specific situation way more often than I would like to. In those situations, if, if I am counseling the woman, I would say to her, something's wrong. Something's wrong. It's great that this guy claims to love you. It's great that he wants to be with you. But it's not great that he doesn't want to take a public, clear commitment to you in the sight of God and witnesses saying that he is committed to you in marriage. Now, that might help us understand baptism. A person has repented. They have come to Jesus. They have declared their love for him, but they refuse to follow through in the commitment of baptism. Something's wrong. Now, it may just be that they lack maturity in teaching. 
that they've never been taught. Look, this is the next step. This is what God is calling you to. This is what Jesus wants to give you. He wants to give you this gift of baptism. But for others, there's a resistance, and and it could be for any variety of reasons. Brothers and sisters, if you have repented of your sin, if you have surrendered to Jesus, but you've never been baptized, the right response to the gospel is awaiting you. Follow through. Follow Jesus in taking the step of commitment and blessing. It is right and it does matter. It's the visible sign of the fact that you have been purified by Jesus and that you belong to him. Now, I just said that in the New Testament, there is a very close connection between salvation and baptism. Um, Another example of that is Philip and and the Ethiopian. I don't know if you remember that story. We're going to get to it later in Acts. But uh, Philip witnesses to this Ethiopian. The Ethiopian believes in Jesus, and the Ethiopian himself says, why shouldn't I be baptized? And it said there was water right there, so they were ba- he was baptized immediately. Going back to the Acts 16 account that I mentioned, Paul, Silas, and the Philippian jailer, I use that passage to argue that baptism is not salvation. But if you read the rest of it, it says that Paul and Silas preached the word to everyone that was in the house, and then at that very hour of the night, they were baptized. So there's a sense of urgency that comes with it. Well, then let's back up. Why then, today, in our practice here at Calvary Calvary International Church and at many other evangelical churches, why is it that today there's often a gap between the time that a person repents and comes to Jesus and the time that they're baptized? And why is it even at times that we sometimes encourage that gap? We need to understand the cultural and societal context of the day. When the book of Acts was actually happening, there was no such thing as cultural Christianity. That concept didn't exist. Think about this. When Peter was preaching that day, there was not a single person in the world who could have said, well, I was born in a Christian family. Or who said, you know, I've I've been a Christian all my life. Or I don't ever remember not knowing about Jesus. Or I was raised in the church. I grew up in the church. I heard about Jesus every week. There was not a single person alive that could say that. Today, of course, that's very different. At least in most of the cultures and countries that are represented in, in our church. The cost of converting to Jesus in the ancient Near East was often very high. People would be ostracized socially. They were often persecuted and demeaned. We see this happening in the book of Acts. It could severely affect their economic status and their financial security. They were often rejected by their families. In fact... It was often argued, and we'll see this later in Acts as well, that converting to Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire. 
because the Roman Empire required all of its subjects to worship the emperor as a god. Now, it was okay to worship other gods too, but they had to worship the emperor. It was called the emperor cult. What's the problem with Christianity and the emperor cult? Jesus is not one of many gods. He is the God, the only God. So there were also some severe political repercussions if someone in the Roman Empire were to convert and choose to follow Jesus. In those days, anyone choosing to be baptized understood the costs. If they came to Jesus, if they repented of their sin and were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Savior, that he was the Son of God, then they would be, they would pay a very high price. Their lives would be vastly different. Baptism was a watershed moment. It's interesting that I've heard accounts that even today, there are certain religions, certain other pagan religions, um, in which people who are, have been part of that religion convert to Christianity. And they have been told, as long as you are not baptized, that's okay. But if you are baptized, we will reject you. You will no longer be a part of us. You are dead to us. Sometimes I think that, that the enemy of the church, Satan himself, has a greater understanding of the value and power of baptism than we do. Now today, for many who choose baptism, there's very little, if any, price to pay, right? I mean, think about it. When, when someone is baptized, very, very often, they invite their non-Christian friends and family members to come celebrate the baptism with them. We've seen it right here. They're sitting right here watching, you know? Sometimes crying, cheering, it's, it's a party, it's a celebration. They go out for lunch together afterwards. Now, I'm not arguing against that. That's wonderful, that's great. Baptism is a celebration. It should be a cause for rejoicing. But what I am trying to say is, there's very little price that is paid. So today, when someone makes what we call a profession of faith in Jesus, when they say, yes, I identify myself with the death and resurrection of Jesus. I have repented of my sin and I belong to him. We want to make sure, to the best of our ability, that they understand the consequences of the choice that they're making. That it is a choice, a decision for transformation. That it is forever. And it's not to be taken lightly. And that's why at times we allow a space for the person to be discipled, as we say. For them to grow in their faith and understanding of what it means to belong to Jesus. And then they follow Christ in baptism. But its importance, the importance of baptism remains. The first two responses that Peter details, repent, be baptized. Following repentance and baptism, there is a gift that is given. We could call this God's part of the response to the gospel or God's response to our response. And that response is the giving of the Holy Spirit to the one who has repented. 
just briefly, it's important to differentiate here between the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gift of the Holy Spirit, singular, is the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit himself, who comes upon and into a person when they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. The gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit are abilities and talents given to specific people in order, order for them to use those gifts to serve and build up the church. But what happened on the day of Pentecost and what happens every time a different person comes to Jesus is the gift of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, a member of the Trinity, comes into a person and makes his home there. God pours his very being out onto and into his children. And that gift has so many ramifications, but the one I want to mention today is written about by Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. There Paul says, having believed, he's writing this to the Christians in Ephesus, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee of the salvation to come. I remember when, when Julie and I had first moved back to Brazil in 2002, she went through the process of getting her permanent residency in Brazil. So she was trying to get her RNE card. And after they processed all her documents, they gave her what everyone who lives in Brazil is, 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 is familiar with. They gave her a, it's not the document itself, but it's something that guarantees that she will receive the document someday in the future. It's a protocolo. A protocolo. It was kind of funny because the protocolo looked like a 10-year-old made it on a dot matrix printer in the late 1970s. It was a little piece of paper like this with her picture glued on it and literally, dot matrix, and when you would get to, I'm getting on a rabbit trail here now, but you would go to the, the airport in the U.S. to travel back to Brazil, and they would look at it and say, what is this? Who made this? No, that's a legal document. That is a deposit guaranteeing that she has been granted permanent residency in Brazil. The official final document isn't here yet, but this is the deposit, the protocol, the protocolo. God puts himself in his people, in his children. And that is, I, I'm not trying to cheapen what the Holy Spirit is or does, but that's the protocolo, that's his guarantee, that's his promise that salvation has begun, but it will, is yet to be fulfilled. And I'm going to promise, I'm going to guarantee that promise of fulfillment by putting my own spirit inside you to live, to convict to comfort, to uphold, to inspire. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the church of salvation. Now note for a moment what Peter says immediately following his statement about the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. We see here two statements. One about the broad scope of the gospel 
and the other about God's continued part in salvation. So first of all, the promise is for the Jews and their children. Those were the people that were hearing Peter preach. This promise is for you and their children. But it's also for all those who are far off. There's a double meaning here that refer, refers both to future generations that aren't yet born. So not just the, the people who are present there and their children, but also the ones, the ones who are far off, the ones who haven't been thought of yet, the ones that are you and me, who weren't even conceived of 2,000 years ago. We are heirs of this promise. We have received this promise even though we were far off. And there's another meaning here that those who are far off, meaning those who are Gentiles, those who are as far from the Jews culturally, socially, and religiously as they could possibly be. For those who are far off, the promise is also for them. The gospel is offered to everyone. But now note the statement, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Do you remember how Peter introduced this sermon by quoting from the prophet Joel? He ended that introduction with the statement that Joel makes that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now at the end of his proclamation, he affirms that those who call on the name of the Lord are those who the Lord has called. So this concept of calling bookends the body of Peter's sermon. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The promise is for all those whom the Lord will call. He calls specific people. And they call on his name for salvation. We call this the doctrine of election. That God is the one who makes it possible for people to respond to his truth. And this highlights the fact that all salvation is God's part. The Father put the plan in motion. Jesus the Son took on human flesh and lived as a man here on earth. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. The Holy Spirit empowered the church at Pentecost and inspired Peter's sermon. They inspired the apostles and the disciples to spread the word, to be witnesses. God calls people to his truth as the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and reveals truth. And those who are called, who hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then call out upon the name of the Lord Jesus. They repent and they're saved. There is human responsibility, as we've already talked about, a responsibility of response to that call. And then here, at the end of of Peter's sermon, we hear just a brief summary about those who, who did respond. Those who accepted his message were baptized. Those who accepted the message were baptized. So there was a human response, repentance, baptism. But it's as a response to God's initiative. I want to bring this to a close today. We spent a lot of time on Acts chapter 2, and we're not done yet. We get one more week in this chapter. But we are going to finish up with Peter's sermon today. I began the sermon this morning by saying that the gospel demands a response. And we specifically saw a response of repentance, a response of obedience and baptism, but then the response of God with the giving of the Holy Spirit. 
So when I say it requires a response right now for you, what is that response? If you have never before repented of your sin, maybe you've never realized you were a sinner, but if you've never done that before and you've never believed that Jesus is the Son of God, that he, that he lived a human life, died a human death, but rose a divine resurrection, that he really is who he said he was. If you've never done that, that's the response that the gospel elicits from you today. To believe in Jesus, to repent of your sin, to follow him in baptism, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the core of the gospel. I was talking to someone yesterday who said that the church is kind of lost today because we don't know what the gospel is. We've lost sight of the gospel. This is the gospel. That Jesus took on flesh as the Son of God. That he lived a perfect life. That he died an innocent death. And that by the power of God, he was raised from the dead and he lives forever. And that he offers his death as payment for your sin. If you've never before understood this, but today the Holy Spirit is convicting you and God is calling you, respond to that call. Repent, admit your sinful state before God. Affirm your belief in Jesus and become a forgiven child of the Almighty Father. Listen, I know it's hard to admit that you're sinful. I know there'll be a lot of arguments that are gonna come in and, and it's going to be the weight argument. I guarantee you one that Satan always uses. It's the weight argument. Well, I, I'm more good than bad. But we've already talked about before, it's not about amount. One sin, that's too much. It's already wrecked the whole thing. So don't listen to those lies. Surrender to Jesus who wants to save you. And Peter, at the end, we don't know exactly everything that he said, but he pleaded with them. It says he pleaded with them to save themselves from the corrupt generation. He went with many words and many things. He went on and on and on. You think this sermon was long? You think what I'm saying this morning was long? Peter went on much longer, I guarantee you. And he was pleading with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Um, okay, is there any doubt is there any doubt from any of you who are listening that we live in a corrupt generation? Watch the news for five minutes. Open a news website. Look at Twitter. Look at Facebook. Look at Instagram for five minutes or less. Actually, don't. Don't look at those things. Just, you, you know, you've already done it. It we live in a corrupt generation. It's urgent, essential to surrender to Jesus. He's the only way to the Father, the only way to God, the only path to salvation. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's one more application I want to make. And this is a response for believers. For those who already claim to be children of God through repentance and through belief in Jesus. We continue to respond to the truth, power, and call of the gospel. That's a continual response. It's not a one time and done. We continue to respond. Salvation is once and for all, but our response to the gospel is continuing. 
We, we respond through obedience. We respond through confession when we become aware of sin. We respond through repentance when we become aware of sin. We, we respond by seeking to live a life that's pleasing to God. But the emphasis in Acts chapter 2 is that we respond as witnesses. How does this account end? 3,000 new disciples joined the church that day. I want to hire that marketing director. Who was responsible for that? Because that, that is... That's remarkable. And, and let me, let me just, just so you understand just how incredible this is, 3,000 disciples is far more followers than Jesus himself ever had during his personal present ministry on earth. In fact, according to Acts, Jesus ascends back into heaven. And how many are there? About 120 that are gathered together. 120. So in three years, in 33 years of life, and in three years of active public ministry on earth, Jesus gained 120 disciples, more or less. In one day, in one sermon, the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter gained 3,000. Jesus, in, in John 14, chapter 12, says something interesting to his disciples, something that, that Christians have struggled with ever since these words were written down for us. Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, I, I think traditionally, the more traditional evangelical churches just kind of skip that verse. There are other groups that really focus in on that verse, but their focus is the signs and wonders that Jesus performed. The miracles, the healings. You know, I want to tell you something. I believe that Jesus still heals today. I believe that Jesus still performs miracles today. But if we look at that promise and then we look at what happens in Acts chapter 1 and we think about what the greatest miracle is, what's the greatest? Is there any greater miracle than a sinful soul made new and saved from hell? Is there? I don't think so. Could it be that we've missed the point? Could it be that these greater things that Jesus referred to was based upon our witness to his truth? that the multiplication of disciples through our witness would be far greater than even the number of disciples that Jesus had while on earth. How is that possible? Well, clearly it's divine. I mean, like I said on the very first day, Acts of the Apostles, this book, it should be called Acts of the Holy Spirit. We know it's still God working, but he's now working through his church. He's working through his disciples. He's working through Peter as the Holy Spirit. So could it be that the greater things that Jesus was talking about was the greater multiplication of his church, the multiplication of believers and disciples, the exponential growth of his kingdom? How? Through the Holy Spirit-empowered 
and inspired witness of his children. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are a witness of the resurrection. Be that witness.